Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, a theoretical physicist specializing in early universe cosmology. She is the author of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Time, and Dreams Deferred. We talk today about this incredible book, about physics, and about the ways that science intersects with our daily lives. The Stacks Book Club pick for May is Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. We'll be discussing the book on the podcast on Wednesday, May 26th with Jenny Lee. If you love The Stacks and want to take part in our monthly virtual book club discussions and get shout outs on the show and other perks, please consider joining The Stacks Pack on Patreon. You contribute monthly and you earn perks and you get to know that your money is enabling me to make this podcast week in and week out. If this sounds like you, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. I want to give a special thank you to some of the newest members of The Stacks Pack, Gracie McGrath, Jen, Emily Gaffney, Nerlissa Berman, Valerie Armstrong, Carly Stewart, Ashmeen Chowdhury, Nana, Kelly Lucas, and Autumn Gowan. Thank you all so much for your support of this show. I am really excited to share with you all my conversation with the brilliant Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. All right, everyone, I'm very excited. I'm here today with the author of The Disordered Cosmos, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She is a theoretical physicist. She is an assistant professor. She also works in the gender studies and women's department at her university in New Hampshire. She's basically an all-around all-star of many, many things. So I'm very excited to talk to you. Shonda, welcome to The Stacks. Hi. I'm so excited. We're going to have... a. am Excited and nervous. As you well know, it is documented that I have science anxiety, which I'm sure you hear a lot about from many people. And I think we should talk about that too. But before we dive into my personal science anxiety, I want you to tell us about your incredible book, The Disordered Cosmos, in about 30 seconds or so. So The Disordered Cosmos is a holistic look at the doing of particle physics and cosmology, which if you don't know what that is, that's the study of the origin of space-time and all of the stuff inside of it. Um, So it's a holistic look. So it's a look at the science. It's a look at what it means to do the science. It's a look at the ethical context of the science and the experience of doing the science and therefore all of the problems associated with trying to do the science. That was very good. I, I was nervous for you because it's sort of a big ask to do that whole book in 30 seconds. Um, this is really a basic question, but I want to know where you got the idea to write this book in this way. You know, I have to say like the book told me about itself while I was writing it. Okay. That was, that ended up being a really big part of the journey. I'm certainly, I think if I went back and looked at my book proposal, in a lot of ways, what I proposed in some technical sense, looks like what came out. But the the through line of the book and even like the idea of splitting it into four different phases to mirror the, the four phases of matter, that was something that came later as mm. I started writing the book. And certainly the, the organization of the chapters is completely different than what I thought it was going to be. Um, 
And like, for example, the book starts with a chapter called I Heart Quirks, which I don't know, maybe that sort of dates me in the sense that it's like sort of an I Heart Huckabees reference, right? (laughs) Um, I don't think the proposal had that chapter in it. And so one of the things that sort of revealed itself to me as I was writing the book was how much I wanted to foreground the physics that I'm passionate about at, at at the start of the book. And I'm... I think in hindsight, that was an important development because I think the reason that the latter parts of the book um, can be compelling for people is because people see my investment in the in the scientific work and see my commitment and excitement for the scientific work. And I think it would be hard to appreciate what I'm saying on the other end in, in the same way if you don't get that experience with me first. Um, so I'll, I'll say that. I guess like the other comment I'll make is actually my agent, Jessica, was like, I'm... You know, you have so much work already out there, like in the blogosphere, but it's only being read by people who are like online all the time, right? Mm. So how can we get those ideas to a different audience? And so actually, in some ways, pieces of the book are remixes of things that I had already written. Mm. Um, I didn't realize how much I was going to rewrite all of that. And so, (laughs) yeah, there was a lot of rewriting. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just so I'm sort of secretly, I guess not secretly, I've probably told you this. I'm sort of obsessed with you existing in the world because I think that you're an inspiration and sort of a dream come true and an c- incredible reality that you, a a Black, uh, agender, Jewish woman living in in America right now, you're doing this work and you're teaching all of us with you. You're bringing us along with you. And, you know, I think a lot of the times when I, when I think of physics or when I think of people with PhDs, it's over there in academia. It's over there for people who are with you on that level. And what you've done is you've created sort of possibility and places for myself to see myself in your work, which I never was like, oh, I'm in the cosmos or like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm quark related, you know, like, so what I just yeah. want to thank you for that. It's not a question. It's just something that I wanted to make sure that I said to you today, because I just think that you existing is meaningful to me, which is sort of a major thing to say, but also I mean it deeply. Um, and one of the things that you talk a lot about in your book and that I drew from the book is how political science is. And I think that there's sort of a, at least for me, an assumption that science is, you know, fact and that politics or opinion is outside of that. Do you remember when you realized how political science was in your process, in your life? Yeah, that's an interesting. So first I should say thank you. Thank you for what you said. And, you know, I always feel like when black Jews run into each other, it's always <laughs> like a really exciting moment. It is. Because so many of us have, so many of us have experienced like being the only one, or if, if I'm, you know, you have a sibling that shares both of your parents, like it's just you and your sibling. Right. right? And so I, I, I do think that, you know, I just want to say, like, even though my Jewishness doesn't figure as much in the book, I'm, it was important for me to bring that along. And there are these places where I, I, I place that. And, I'm, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, actually, being interviewed by Jewish people for, this pub- for the publication of the book has, has been kind of an interesting experience. I'm, you know, I think, like, Wait, what was the question? It was, was about the political about bringing all of ourselves together. Yeah. Okay. The, the political question, which actually, I guess, is like connected to the question I was going to answer, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, which is about like bringing all of ourselves to the table. Um, I grew up in a very political family. And so, and, and that comes out somewhat in, in the book in, in different ways. Like I talk about my grandmother's work founding the Wages for Housework campaign and my mother's involvement in that. And, you know, growing up watching my mom as an activist and the sacrifices that my my mom made, really there to make a point about how, you know, there are lots of things that contribute to science that we don't articulate as contributions to science and, and wanting to make that political point. Because of that, and because of my mother and my grandmother, I grew up in such a politicized environment that I don't think I ever had a moment where I didn't understand science as political. Mm. 
I think what changed was the ways in which I understood science as political and how I understood my positionality relative to it. Um, when I was very young, I thought there was a way for me to get outside of what had been political about science. And I think, you know, one of my great disappointments was realizing that actually rather than science being a place of escape, I was kind of going into the belly of the beast. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Will you talk in the book, like, I mean, just the phrase dark matter, you know, that I never thought of that at all as being, as having, you know, political or racial or whatever understandings. And you bring things like that to the forefront. I don't want to spoil any part of the book because there are sort of these revelations where you call out things um, that at least I found to That's be, okay. you know, exciting. But but I'm I'm so obsessed with this idea of audience when I think about this book because I went to your event last night with KSA at Harvard and the the questions that were coming from the audience were really fascinating to me because some of them felt very sciencey and I was like I've never seen a question like this at a book event before and then some of them were like about books and so I'm curious how you think about or how you thought about your audience when working on this yeah. or when putting it out in the world. I guess like one comment I can make, I wasn't looking at the Q&A during the conversation at all until maybe the last 15 minutes. And then I looked at it and I was like, this is all of my my physicist friends asking questions. Like they were basically, I didn't tell anyone to plant questions, but they were like, can you talk about the painting behind you? I think that was Leo Stein. He's like <laughs> a, a gravitational theorist, also at the University of Mississippi. So for him, it was like an interesting experience because of Kiesi's, um faculty position there. Um I, I was thinking about that audience, and I was also thinking about people who don't usually read popular science, which I'm, I'm, I've gotten the impression from talking to you that you might fall in that, that category. That's definitely me. Like, I couldn't even do, yeah. like, there have been, like, my husband reads Bill Bryson or whatever. Is that his name? I can't do it. Yeah. I'm like, too much science. <laughs> too hard. <laughs> yeah. So I guess in, like, some sense, I thought of the book. I don't know if this is a bad analogy, but I guess what I've been saying is that it was kind of like a Trojan horse that went mm. in two directions, which was I knew that there was going to be an audience of people who, if people were picking up the book, that some of them were going to be people who were interested in it because I was a black woman who has been doing like black feminist thought from the position of being a theoretical physicist. And there were going to be some people who picked up the book because they were like, oh, it's um this is going to sound more pejorative than it should, but oh, it's like a diverse woman writing a book about physics, which is right, like, I know right. how it's getting getting pitched in, in, in some spaces, right? And the people who wanted to read a popular science book are going to come out of the book understanding something about Black feminist thought, I hope, if I've done some of my job. And the people who um, you know, are like, I don't read science, I don't see what relevance it has to me are not going to be theoretical cosmologists off the bat, right? Like mm. it's hard. You don't get a PhD in 150 pages, but are going to come out of the book having some sense that there are these things called quarks, that there's something beyond an electron when we're talking about particles. To be able to put names to those things, to say, oh, I've heard of a neutrino. I read in a book that neutrinos used to be popular dark matter candidates, and they're not anymore. Um, the, that was what I wanted people to take away from it. And in some sense, the thing that I wanted to like instigate there was the suggestion to people on both sides of that conversation that it was one conversation. <laughs> right, right. Like that we'd been maybe missing part of that conversation from either side. Right. So part of it was definitely, you know, saying Black scientists are here. We exist as whole people. We don't come in percentage, like I'm 50% scientist and I'm 50% black person. Like that's not, right, that's right. not how it works. And I'm, so I think that, you know, if I was to name another audience, the other audience was saying to fellow black scientists, it's okay to exist in all of these facets. Mm. It is okay to exist as a political person in a way that we are not encouraged to in the scientific community. and. You know, if if it turned out that the book didn't do well, right? If it, if it doesn't do well, I don't know how it's going to do. Um, if it, it, my hope was that the book would at least exist long enough physically in the world, although it's great that there are ebooks now, right? <laughs> that some seventeen-year-old 
genderqueer girl who doesn't know that she's genderqueer or whatever, who's excited about physics and could use some help in moving into that world, that like that book will now exist for that person. Yeah. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, I was writing for 17-year-old Chanda that, um, you know, A Brief History of Time and Cosmos were beautiful books, but they didn't help me navigate physics as a Black woman right. by, by saying these things are there. And really, it's almost like a, an anti-gaslighting guide. Right. Which is like, right. no, it's real. It's real. <laughs> Right. So that's how I was thinking about audience, which is like I wrote for myself if nobody else, but I hoped that a lot of other people would come along for the ride. Right. And you're sort of, you know, this great example of intersectionality and in action, if you will. Right. Like like you're saying you're not 50 percent scientist and 50 percent black woman, but you're 100 percent of all of these things. And they come together in this, you know, very specific intersection that that makes up Chanda. But, you know, there might be intersections that others of us cross with you. And and then there's also opportunity to learn or whatever that looks like for the reader. I, as a, as a science, non-science person, I don't know. I'm not non-science. I just, it's not something that I understand. But I do have a question for you about this because in reading your book, I was like, wait a second, what is physics? And I was like, oh, physics is what makes up the universe. This is what I gathered in my limited knowledge. And then I started thinking like, right, you do phys- in, in high school, I was taught biology first, then chemistry. Then I didn't do physics, but I could have. But that seems backwards to me now understanding that physics is the building blocks. And why would we go from the biggest thing to the smallest thing when we could go from the smallest thing to build the biggest thing? And so I want you to tell me why my education sucked. <laughs> I guess the comment I want to make to you is that I, I I know that you said that you didn't understand the book at points or that you struggled with the book at points. I definitely but did. I feel like you got you got the thing. I mean, in some I sense, definitely like, I got, got it. I don't I don't think anything that you said in the book was too hard for me to understand big picture. But there's like details yeah. in the book where I was like, I am not fundamentally equipped for this. And so for those things, I did a little Googling and I took what I could and I moved on. Like yeah. the, the book is a beautiful book about so many things and how they intersect again. Yeah. But like the detail of like, I don't know, things I can't even remember at this point. I don't remember <laughs> those things. Like that's just not my brain. I'm not ready for that yet. I can get there. But you know, and I think that that's fair. And I think that's true yeah. for all sorts of books. You know, like I read books on mass incarceration where I'm like, I don't understand these statistics right now. And I think that like that's a sign of, a, at least for me, a good nonfiction book is that it prompts me to want to read more, to like want to Google. Um, but mm-hmm. back yeah. to the question, I, why I, is science I, crap at yeah. school? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I guess I would say like I agree. Like it should be a taster. And, you know, the the debate about you know, I, I'm thinking of like my black and stem crew, my my bonnets and bottles crew, as we call ourselves, <laughs> um, that has like biologists and chemists and like a, a biophysicist in it. And so I want to make sure I don't get in trouble with them. Okay. Um, there is there is like one way of looking at the sciences, which is that you're get you're going to increasingly more and more what we would call like fundamental objects, right? And that particles are somehow like the most fundamental objects in the universe. Um, You know, I think that there are reasons why it can be bad to look at physics in that way, because it sort of situates physics as what like even um, Reese Morris has called it like physics as king. And I think king is very like king as opposed to queen. Like it's really like it's almost like this masculine organization that there Mm. has to be a hierarchy. Um. I, you know, I'm not an expert on pedagogy, but I do think that one of the reasons that physics comes last is the idea that a student has to be at a certain level of sophistication before they can understand physics. And I think a lot of that has to do with, like, again, decisions on how the material is taught. And so, you know, the reason I was kind of pointing to, like, these questions of understanding, I'm is at the end of the day, science is about what we don't know and science is about what we don't understand. And so the experience of not understanding is a highly scientist experience. Mm. The experience of being confused is a highly scientist experience. 
Um, so I, th I just want to add another layer to it's also not necessarily bad if you have to sit with it in another way, because that's actually what a scientist does is you read things, you're confused. Your job is to work at the boundary of what humanity understands and what humanity doesn't understand and try and push that boundary forward a little mm. bit, right? So I think the argument is that in physics, this is harder to do unless you've reached a certain level of sophistication. But I do think that that's a social choice and it has to do with like what we value and what we think needs to be taught first. Like we teach Newtonian mechanics first. Um, but as I was saying to, to Kiese last night and to the, the, the audience at, at the, the event last night, um, I think that non-binary folk will probably have a much easier time with quantum mechanics than people who are very invested in the idea that something is either one thing or another. But those of us who are used to thinking about things being two things at once, that's not such an unnatural idea. Mm, right, right. And that there, yeah. Do you, or what is it about the unknown that is exciting to you? I, so I'll be honest and say, like, at, at heart, I'm like a mathematician. So okay. I think, like, the most exciting thing for me about what I do is, like, this completely fascinating relationship between math and the physical universe that we can, like, do these calculations and you can do this like really painful like 15 page calculation you have to it takes weeks to check it and and all of that mess and then on the other end you get like one number out of it and then like maybe you spend like 20 years 30 years 40 <laughs> years building an experiment and the experiment pops that number out like exactly that's wild to me like that has never gotten old for me <laughs> that's a completely like wild phenomenon that I'm we have the capacity to do that. And for whatever reason, math is that language. Mm. So I'm, I'm almost interested in it for philosophical reasons, but I enjoy um, that, that process of matching. I also actually really enjoy the making things up part, which is like a big part of my job as a theoretical physicist. It's our job to be like, oh, the data isn't well explained. What if we had this weird newly fandangled theory? <laughs> And, and let's test it, see if it's broken. It's probably broken, but it was fun to think about in the meantime. Right. Oh my gosh. That I, I, I love that that is something that you're into because that gives me like anxiety, like, <laughs> like playing in the unknown for me is very, very difficult. And I love that you exist because you can do that for us and you can help us figure out the universe, thankfully. Also that you're so good at math. My gosh, it's just incredible. I mean, as a literary person, obviously, I I chose the I chose the humanity side, but you also have this whole humanity side to you, and I want to talk about that too because I think you know the book kind of starts off very science heavy, but by the end, like you mentioned, we're that in that Trojan horse, we're deep into kind of interpersonal or personal theory, et cetera. So how did you sort of carve out that space for yourself to be able to do both things? Like, how did you fight for that? I think it was a matter of necessity for me. Mm. Um, which is, as I move forward on my academic path, I was having experiences. And as a scientist, I had a need to understand them and to situate them in context. I think that almost always, I'm, you know, I don't know if we should call this like how a scientist is, or maybe it's just my personality, okay. but <laughs> I want to know why things are the way that they are. Right. Like this is like a really deep seated need. Um, it was truly annoying for my mother when I was a kid <laughs> because like she would tell me to do something and I would be like, yes, but I need to understand why I have to do it now. <laughs> right. 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 It is like the last thing like a black Caribbean mom wants to hear from her kid is like, please explain to me why I should follow your instructions. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I I definitely think that like it's the same thing. So I was looking at it and I was like, why is it that there are more likely to be international students in my class than other black students? Not that the international students were ever a problem, but that like I'm my my classrooms didn't didn't reflect the community that I came from, the community mm -hmm. that I had grown up in. The com I should say communities because I grew up in East Los Angeles and I grew up in like a, a primarily like Chicano 
um, and also like Centro Americano like community. And so like trying to figure out like I'm when I did meet other when I did meet I shouldn't say other when I did meet Latino people um, or Latinx people. Um, they were people who uh, would be racially identified, I think, by a lot of people as white. Mm. I wasn't meeting people who were brown like my stepmother is. And so I was asking questions like, why is it the way that it is? I was also having these like really negative experiences where I would be like targeted by people like um, this is a story. I, I don't think that I talk about this in the book, but I had a moment where a postdoc said to me, like, you black people are always complaining about slavery. And it happened a long time ago. And you people should just get over it. Not you people. Yeah. And, and I had I ended up switching dissertation topics because of that conversation, because wow. like I had to work with him otherwise. And I was so afraid to say something to him about it that I didn't, which anybody who knows me really well would be like, Chanda, you let that guy just get away with it and walked <laughs> away. But I was terrified as a graduate student to challenge this more senior person. And the next day I had all of these like guys coming up to me and they were like, I hear you really overreacted last night. And I was like, but I didn't even say anything, right? So I was having these kinds of experiences. I am, mm. and I I think that there were multiple moments where it was like, you either start doing something about this or you quit because I can't live in this field the way that it is and not be fighting. Mm. And it didn't feel like calculating was enough fighting. <laughs> <laughs> like I had more energy than that. And I right. think at some point you you have the energy in you. The energy has to get out somehow. Right. Right. I don't know. It's like Jean Grey and the Phoenix. Like, did you just like, you, you have to, like the energy has to get out somehow. And right. the hope is that you can control it. Right. Right. Something that you touched on earlier about your political uh, activist family that I really want to talk about briefly, at least a little bit is the women who make science possible. I found that section of the book to be really interesting. Um, and, you know, the thing that I think about all the time is who's missing from our stories, who's missing from our history. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you, who you see as the women who've made, his, who've made science possible. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's really important about how we think about science and labor in science is that we tend to honor the people whose names end up on things as the only people whose work matters. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's so many different pieces to actually getting scientific work done. We have an incredible dependence in the academy on administrators. And, and in particular, I mean, like ad people who usually carry the title like administrative assistant or our librarians. I'm we also really depend on like the janitors. Like, can you just imagine if like the garbage never got taken out? Right. Like, um, our, our buildings would be a filthy mess and um, you can't work in those conditions, right? So somebody has to take the garbage out. Um, that is a necessary feature of, of getting science done. And to a large extent, not entirely, the workforce that often does a lot of that work is made up of, of women. Um, if not women, often then immigrant men um, or immigrant men and women. And, uh, and, and usually they're like really poorly paid. And so like people are like, you know, doing research that might win them a Nobel Prize later. Right. And there's no recognition that like, you know, somebody, somebody took care of business in the building. And then you also have, you know, a lot of people have like stay-at-home spouses who are doing the full-time job of raising the children. And then they're just like, you know, thanks, thanks for supporting me, honey, maybe, right? Right, right. But like not enough, um, like Malcolm and Marie. But not, <laughs> right. I mean, I also, this is actually one of the reasons when people ask me like how I get it done, I really make a, a careful point of saying that my, my spouse who is a cis man, does most of the housework. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that I am physically disabled and it means that I'm in I'm chronic pain less if I'm doing fewer things that might set the problems off. Right. But the other piece of it is that he made the decision that he wanted me to do this work. And so one of the ways that I have the time to do this work is because there are things that he takes off my plate. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's, that's, that's just like a really important piece that the ideas in the book, for example, are mine. They're all mine. I'm the one who sat at the computer. I typed every single word. It is also the case that he read the book seven times. Wow. And I'm, you know, gave me feedback and edits and sometimes was looking at other people's edits and telling me what he thought of them and whether I should listen to them. Right. Yeah. Like the people who support support the work are often overlooked in ways that are not very nice or very fair or the people who, you know, make, make, like you say, make it possible to do the things, whether it's theoretical physics or writing a book or whatever other things are part of your life. But the people who support the creativity are often um, the unsung heroes, I guess. Right. Yeah. I guess I was just going to add that like the one way in which like he and I are a bad example, right. (laughs) Is that he, he has his own job and actually he makes more money than I do in his job. Um, so, you know, he's not dependent on me mm. for his like livelihood. <clears throat> if that's, if that dynamic ends up not working between us, or if I start becoming demanding in ways that like he's unhappy with, he's actually safe to walk away from it, right? Right. And often the dynamic is that somebody is economically dependent on the other person. Right. And it's not so easy to just say, you know what? I don't want to do this labor with you or for you or in support of you because like their ability to eat and have housing is dependent on it. And so I just want to like point out that that's like one, I think our dynamic is healthier actually because we have that financial independence from each other. Right. And it maybe sounds like it's something that's more um, consciously agreed upon as opposed to financially necessary or economically necessary. Or something that like he felt like it was his assigned role because of his socially assigned gender at birth or something like that. Right. And I think that that really shifts the dynamic. If like it's something that you have decided, this is something that I want to commit to. This is how I want to use my time. As opposed to I'm obligated to use my time in this way because of my social location in the greater society. Right. I love this conversation because this is sort of what reading your book feels like. It's like thinking through these (laughs) problems or these issues or these ideas and like kind of going through and unpacking and then repacking in a more complicated and interesting, interesting way. Um, We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. One of the quotes that I just want to make sure I mention um, in the conversation is, I believe, from your mother. It's towards the end of the book. And it, and it says, people need to know they live in a universe that is bigger than the bad things that happen to us. And that really struck a chord with me because... I do think, at least for myself in my personal life, I don't think about science very often. And yet, obviously, I'm living through science at every turn, right? Everything I touch is connected to, you know, the work that you do and everything that I, you know, how my body works and all that is all connected to science. And it was sort of a really nice, just something that I really like to think about is that that the universe is bigger than the things that happen to us and the things that we interact with. And also that the universe is connected to all of those things. Yeah. So that, that, that line, which I think it appears in, in the dear mama, yeah. the letter at the, at the end. And it's also actually one of the epigraphs of, of the book. So if you go to the the very front, you will also see, however, I don't know the exact wording of it either. Um, but I should, I should, first of all, I should say my mom's name out loud, like Margaret Prescott, like, you know, just on the conversation that we were just having about like labor. The reason that the book ends with this letter to my mother is in part because like, I wanted to articulate that my mom, who I think shares at least your math anxiety, if not your, <laughs> your science anxiety, um, that she has made contributions to science and part of those contributions were through making sure that opportunities stayed available to me and making sacrifices so that those opportunities stayed available to me. And I, I wanted to think about that in kind of a more a collective way. But I also think that, you know, sometimes our vocabulary for our scientific activities is not a scientific vocabulary, but that doesn't mean that we're not doing scientist-y type things. Right. Right. Like I even think about, you know, the fact that you and I were getting the the podcast set up and you have like your microphone and <laughs> your your headphones and you've clearly like thought about what your setup is and like, you know, I'm you probably have made sure that like you have you know the right stuff on your floor. I've sort of done that. It's not great. Um but you're doing tech, right? right. That's you doing tech. I'm Sure, you've bought a lot of products, you didn't build the headphones, you didn't build the microphone, but you also, you know, figured out which ones you wanted to buy, uh, what you wanted your, um, the, the guests on your wonderful podcast, you know, what kind of prep you wanted them to have, like, ideally. And those are, in my mind, you are making, like, technical decisions, mm. right? So I look at that, and I'm like, that is tech work you know, we can have a whole discussion about whether it's like science or technology or engineering. To me, all of it is science Right. Um, at the end of the day. So I think that that's one way that we are actually doing those things in our lives. And maybe part of the case that I wanted to make with, with the physicality of the book, even in choosing the cover, choosing the title, choosing the way that the book was aimed, was to say that you are in the story, even if, and you have been telling part of the story, even if you didn't think you were. Mm, I want to talk about the cover. It's gorgeous. I mean, the book is stunning. Did you have any part in, in the process of the cover? And if you did, will you tell us about it? So the cover designer, Pete Garso, definitely deserves credit for the, the final design and, and choosing the final image and he had done designs for astrophysics books before and so that he he was already kind of thinking in that direction um but i think this is this is a hard book to think with in the sense that like there isn't like another book where you're like well the last book that was like this one we just did this kind of cover right 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 right. (laughs) Like my my undergraduate advisor said to me on Monday, she was like, I think we can safely say that nobody has ever written a book like this one before because the pieces that you put into it 
are not because like my book is particularly brilliant or anything like that, but just because the pieces that I chose to put into it are unique. Yes. And reflections of me. Um, so we were looking at some of the ideas and I was kind of like, I'm not sure what to do. And my, my best friend, Sharifa Williams, who drew a lot of the figures for the book, mm. we have like our weekly hangout. And I was like, you know, I really want like the cosmos inside a black person. And she mm. was like, oh, well, let's like, you know, look around and see if we can find some examples of that. And she was really insistent. Sharifa was like, we just have to do it. Let's hang out on Pinterest and, and Google image search for a few hours. Um, and so I sent a bunch of options over and then Pete picked up on it immediately. Ugh, so in, in a lot of ways, like the, the concept was, was mine, but I don't have the kinds of skills to turn it into a thing the way that Pete did. Yeah. I mean, it just turned out so, so, so gorgeous. It's a, a strikingly beautiful book. Not that, you know, you're supposed to judge a book by its cover, but when a book has a beautiful cover, it's worth talking about, I feel. And I do judge books by covers and that's just part of who I am. Um, I, when you I were talking, yeah, I mean, I think we all do. I think it's a silly thing to admonish people for like, yes, there could be a great book inside a shitty cover and there are many, but also a gorgeous cover is a beautiful part of a book and that should be celebrated. Um, one of the things exactly. you were talking about that reminded me of my own science background. And I want, I want to ask you what you think of this, because I thought one thing until I was listening to you talk, but when I was in middle school, so sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I went to a school where we had co-ed classes except for math and science. And we were separated into boys and girls and for those classes only. And and then we were, you know, co-ed for English and history, co-ed for PE, all that stuff. Because allegedly at the time in the late 90s, girls were not at, talking in math and science classes. And now that I think about it, I'm not sure that I think that that was a great idea, but I'm curious what you think, because this is sort of your your world. Yeah, I will say as someone who's never experienced like single sex, single gender education, I can only kind of like hypothesize about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in having conversations with people who like went to all girls schools and then maybe went to like women's colleges, for example, it does sound like it can be a positive experience to not have to compete with um, people who are experimenting with masculinity. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's, that's part of, that's a big piece of middle school. If right. you're going to like a co-ed school is, I mean, is, is dealing with people who are experimenting with masculinity. Not all of them are people who were socially assigned male at birth, but a lot of them are people who were socially assigned male at birth. Right. Um. And, you know, I think the, the example that I'm more familiar with is the case with historically black colleges and universities, which mm. like I did not go to an HBCU, but because I'm a black physicist and I've been involved in, in the community of black physicists, I have learned a lot about HBCUs because they still produce one third of the black bachelor's degrees in physics in the United States. And when mm. I graduated from college, they were producing over half of them. Wow. So HBCUs really... Um, punch above their weight class in terms of the contributions they make to American society, uh, which I think, you know, when we're talking about like unrecognized labor, the federal government should just be giving HBCUs money and being like, thanks, right. you know, <laughs> right. for what you've done in the past and what you're doing right now. Um, students come out of HBCUs with higher levels of self-confidence than those of us who go to um, predominantly white institutions and black students who go to PWIs. So there is clearly a lot of value in isolating students away from folks who are experimenting with their place in systemic oppression, right. basically. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, I, that's that's clearly, and that's not to say HBCUs are perfect. Um, you know, there's been lots of discussion about transphobia and homophobia, and um, the different ways people can feel unwelcome in those spaces. But you know, you do take one thing more out of the equation, and I can see why that would be valuable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about your actual process in writing the book. How long did it take you to write it? I know you said a lot of it was written before and then you had to go back and revise, but from kind of when you started actually working on the book until you turned in your final draft, how long did that take? So I will say content that I started with that 
pieces of it ended up in the book somehow. That was maybe 30% of okay. the text. Okay. Um, was like, I can just take this blog entry and put it in a chapter. The blog entries were all too short and they're all like completely chopped up now. Right. Like, even like the, the one that's closest, let astrophysics be the dream it used to be. Um, I ended up significantly revising. Um, the physics of melanin is twice the size and actually is the chapter that I reorganized the most, even right up until returning my responses to the copy edit. <laughs> the beginning of that chapter changed every revision of the book. Wow. Um, so I started with, so from cut and paste in like May of 2019. Okay. And then I turned in the first draft of the book at the end of July of 2019. Wow. Yeah. My editor was like, Chanda, I don't know what to do with this because it's due January 1st, 2020. <laughs> and I have other books I have to work on right now. But I had set myself a deadline of August 26th because I was going to be teaching a class for the first time as a professor that I'm starting that day. And so I wanted to have the first draft out before I really had to just be focused on my students and mm. on my teaching and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know, Scrivener was like my best friend. I actually have been like giving like almost seminars. I just gave like a, a little mini seminar to a group of other black Jewish women who are working on books. Oh, wow. About like how to use Scrivener to effect. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. What about... So that was draft one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was very fast. I mean, I think no one has ever told me that it ever took them that short of amount of a time, which is pretty incredible, which leads me to my next question, which is how do you write when you were working on this book? Where were you? How off? How long in the day? How many days a week? Can you listen to music? Are you eating snacks? Are there beverages around? Do you have rituals? Kind of set the scene of your writing process. So I guess I have to go back to, to Scrivener here, which is that Scrivener has this feature where you can say how long, how many words you want, mm. right? And then you tell it which days of the week you're going to write, and then it will calculate for you. And you tell it what your deadline is, and it will calculate for you how many words you have to write each day in order to hit that deadline. This is very sciencey, very math sciencey of you. This is very sciencey. <laughs> I'm... My my friend, like Elizabeth Crane, got all sorts of like neurotic text messages from me that were like, I don't know if I'm doing enough words. Am I going to hit the word count? Um, so even so my my process was that I committed to doing at least that many words every day. And if I did more than that, I let myself keep going. But I uh -huh. had to do that many words every single day, even if it was an off day. And it meant I got less sleep. I just, I had, I had to do it. Um, my husband brings me water <laughs> okay. to make sure I drink water. And would occasionally poke me and be like, when was the last time you peed? Like I, <laughs> I had to like, I had to be told to get up from the laptop. I had to be told to drink water. Um, and that was one of the reasons it happened so fast. The other piece of it actually was that I was for, for, Part of that summer of 2019, I was at the Aspen Center for Physics. Mm. I was there for three weeks, I think. And so um, the way that that works is you get assigned an apartment. And so I was going to the Aspen Center. I was doing physics. And then after I'd been there long enough and needed a break from the physicists, frankly, <laughs> I went back to, to the apartment and I wrote. And so I actually wrote significant portions of the book in a, a condo. Um, in downtown Aspen, Colorado, wow. across the street from two different pot businesses that I managed to not patronize while I was there. Wow. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then um, when I was doing draft number two, which was in February of last year, I was visiting the Copley Institute for Theoretical Physics at UC Santa Barbara. Mm. And so um, I was getting up at like, 5 30 in the morning and Ugh. and doing some writing and then going to the center and and or to the institute and spending the day there so actually a lot of it was happening while I was like on physics retreats interesting um 
which got me out of like what what my norm was and I think made it easier for me to focus. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have any snacks or no? Just sometimes husband provided water. I'm yeah, I'm very like I'm for the most part like a meal oriented person okay. unless like there's ice cream or cupcakes involved. <laughs> Strong love of ice cream and cupcakes over here. Is there a favorite ice cream flavor or brand that you're fond of? Yeah, so I'm actually like, I'm a super taster. <laughs> One of my <laughs> dentists told me that I have like the largest taste buds that she's ever <laughs> seen in her life. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so I'm like kind of a picky eater. So I will just say like, I, it's haagen Mm. I like it's Haagen-Dazs and particularly like Haagen-Dazs strawberry ice cream is okay. definitely my favorite. Love a strawberry ice cream. I have so this is a little about me <laughs> that you didn't ask about, but I love strawberry ice cream. And when I go to a new place, like if I'm you know out on the coast or something, and we're gonna stop and get ice cream, which happens regularly, the only flavor I'll get is strawberry because I think you can tell if a re- ice cream place is good or not based on the strawberry ice cream. So I've had many a strawberry ice cream from many an ice cream parlor. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's my feeling because vanilla is like too boring, and chocolate can be way too vast. It can be like dark chocolate, light chocolate, milk chocolate, whatever. So I go with strawberry so I can compare and contrast across the board. (laughs) You realize that's like extremely scientific behavior, right? So as you're talking (laughs) about, I'm realizing that I am actually very life science oriented. Like I love an experiment. I love a rule. I love a ritual. I love all of those things. I, my science falls off when math gets involved. So like science Mm. I can do without a calculator or with very minimal calculations I'm all in. Love an Excel spreadsheet, love a document to track, love a graph. But when it starts to get to be like divide and then multiply, I'm like, ooh, gotta go. <laughs> you know, I have I, I know I keep I keep coming back to this, but I think I'm like I'm just on a proselytizing mission here. Um, you know, every scientist has a thing that they have to be good at that is not their favorite thing to do. <laughs> Honestly, and 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 or it's something that they had to like work at to be good at. Um, in my case, actually, it was writing. I was like a completely, I was like such a not good writer mm. when I graduated from high school. I was such a crap writer that like one of my counselors, who I, people always like sort of beat up on her when I tell this story, but actually she was fantastic in mm. in in all other ways. She was like, it's so good that you want to be a physicist because you're never going to make it as a writer. Like, that's just not your strength. Counselors always be saying dumb shit like that. Like, what is wrong with you? Be supportive. I'm 16. Like, why are you shitting on me? (laughs) But, you know, I go back and I look like when I graduated from college, like I have like some like old CD or whatever with like my old college essays. They were garbage. Like I was just like I was not a good writer even when I graduated from from college, right? I'm for me that was like a hard fought skill and I would say like, you know, I'm not I'm not a KSA layman. Like nobody nobody else is right, really. Of course. But my writing is like okay now, right? It's readable. <laughs> I'm in ways in we in ways that it wasn't. And that's something that like I simply had to work for. I enjoy it now. So this is maybe not a good example of things that we're not good at and don't enjoy. But I was also having a conversation a few weeks ago, a science conversation with like an incredibly famous, distinguished um, woman theoretical physicist. And I was trying to explain to her something that I had done in my rec- one of my recent research papers with one of my graduate students. And it's a very technical, very like formal mathematical paper because I enjoy that kind of crap. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, I wasn't able to follow everything in your paper because like I'm not a very mathematical person. Uh, and this is like someone who's like, who's like obviously like a, very she, mathematical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, is that for her, I think that like, if she had to pick one, she would say like, the things that excite her are like, much more along the lines of what you just articulated. I think she likes looking at plots, she likes looking at the big picture. Um. Anyway, I just I want to make a comment about ice cream, though. Okay, yes, please. Back to the important <laughs> stuff, the stuff that matters just, to all of us. <laughs> and ice cream that I think about a lot and I long for is there was an ice cream shop in Santa Cruz, California, where I, I lived for, for part of graduate school. And I can't remember the name of it, but they had like an amazing cantaloupe ice cream hmm. that 
I long to taste that cantaloupe <laughs> ice cream. And and another dessert that I, I long for is one time I went to visit the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. Well, actually, I went to visit a friend who was working there, but that's why I was in Geneva. And I had a Napoleon there. Hmm. And I longed for this Napoleon so much that, in fact, I was telling my BFF, Sharifa, about it again this past Monday. And Sharifa was like, Chanda, you've told me about this Napoleon already. <laughs> like, in the last year, you have mentioned this Napoleon. <laughs> Honestly, if dessert's not doing that for you, you're eating the wrong dessert. It should be life-changing, <laughs> yeah. and you should not be able to get it off your mind. Um, before I let you I go, mean, it had oh. these strawberries in it. They were like perfect. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, I I know we're here to talk about books and not honestly, like my we're favorite really desserts. here to talk about dessert. <laughs> this should have just been a dessert podcast, honestly. But you know, I we all make mistakes in life. Um, one of the things I do want to talk to you about because I I'm always curious about this is you're sort of a maybe not exactly a first only different as Shonda Rhimes would say, but you are someone who's sort of blazing a trail for other people. Um, and I think you talked about that in the beginning about how you hope this book might provide a little light for fo young folks who are trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be. You are on Twitter a lot, teaching a lot of us all sorts of shit and pushing back against a lot of other stuff and kind of, you know, you're an activist, like you're doing what activists do. I want to know how you decide for yourself what's worth fighting for and the things that you need to step away from to preserve your own self. I'm not good at the self-preservation part. I and <laughs> I think that this is, you know, I was, I think black women are often not good at the self-preservation right. part. Right. And that's, we live in a society that doesn't encourage us to be good at it. It encourages us to give 100% all the time, particularly if it benefits other people. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm, I, I love you, mom, but my mom was a really bad example on this front because my mom will give until she is physically ill. And I watched her do this a couple of times mm. when I was a child. I'm, I've had many conversations with my spouse about this. And he, I mean, you know, just coming back to you, I'm <laughs> like, I get in trouble now. He's like, I only refilled your water glass this many times today. You weren't drinking enough water. <laughs> um there that it does it has for me anyway required having people around me who tell me that it is okay to say no sometimes that it is okay to take care of myself and i just want to articulate like one of the ways that those pressures function is that when i finally found the wherewithal to start saying no to people occasionally that people could be quite nasty about it mm -hmm. and i'm and one of the hardest things was black people being nasty to me about it, which was like, y'all understand what this is like. Why, why, where, why is there no like empathy, compassion for like what my, my human needs are? Mm. Um, and so I actually think like, you know, there's, there's really two versions of that conversation, which is that like, we need to have the conversation about how like, um, you know, white supremacy encourages uh, folks who are not black to see us as like mammies or, or mammy, some, some version of that. I am, but I also think that among black folks, we need to have that conversation as well. And I think between black women um, and black femmes, we need to have that conversation of how do we take that on and start doing it to each other. Mm. And to, to kind of cap that off with like a positive note, like I really, like I mentioned my Bonnets and Bottles crew before, it's one dude and then like three other black women. And it's actually important for me to have black folks and black women in particular around me saying like, no, sis, it's okay to like put that down. Right, right. Yeah. The other part of your identity that we didn't really get to talk to too much, but I definitely want to mention it is um, the your Judaism. And I'm always very curious about scientists who are who are religious and I'm curious kind of how you work between religion and science because I think for and in some circles it's an either or type situation and obviously you know I know it can't be that for you but I'm, I'm curious how you square sort of the unknown with the higher power part of it or if you think about it in that way at all so I definitely think that like 
in this scenario, being Jewish is easier than being Christian because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, to be a practicing Jew, you don't actually have to believe in, in God. You just have to follow the rules. Like <laughs> I'm the, like the, com- you have to follow the commandments in some technical sense. Like there isn't like, um, whereas I think in Christianity, this can be a lot more challenging because I, I think you do have to believe in the resurrection or maybe I'm showing my ignorance here about, about how the Gentiles are. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't feel a faith in the supernatural, which I think is required to, to say like, I, I believe in the supernatural or I believe in God, but I, I find I am the Jewish and particularly the reconstructionist Jewish um, articulation of God to be a useful concept to work with and to articulate values with and through. And so for me, Judaism is, um, it's both an ethnic identity for me as an Ashkenazi Jew, and it's also a community of practice and a community of value. Mm. And I, I feel like I have a strong relationship with my my rabbi, and I'm 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 a very active member of of my community, even if like you know often virtually. Hmm. Um, but for me, it's not about reckoning with supernatural or not supernatural. I think as a scientist, I don't have enough evidence for the existence of supernatural, but I'm open to it. But I don't see any evidence for it, so it's not something I believe in. But I do see Judaism as shaping the values I bring to the table as a scientist. Mm. And I hope if people take nothing else away from the book, the part of the conversation has to be that scientists are always bringing values to the table and that shapes the world that we live in. Right, right. That, I mean, I think that is one of the most powerful parts of the book is that, at least for me, I realized how how science, how much science is shaped by the scientists who are doing the science. I have mm, two more questions for you. One is for people who love the disordered cosmos, what are some books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with what you've done? We've already touched on the fact that this book is sort of its own thing and there isn't really anything like it, but there must be books that you might recommend either on the sciencey side or on the on the activisty side, I don't know, the black feminist side that folks could touch into. Yeah, so the the very first book that comes to mind is Clifford Johnson's The Dialogues. So Clifford is a fellow Black Caribbean physicist. He's Mm. a a Black British theoretical physicist. He's a professor at USC. And The Dialogues is a graphic novel style popular science book that I would say is extremely family friendly. And um, it's, it's beautiful. It's that the people in it are in different shades. And so everybody will, I think, see themselves reflected in the book. So if you're like, okay, now I really want to slow down. Like now I've become convinced that maybe physics is interesting to me. Okay. And I'm talking to you, Tracy. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I hear you, I hear you. <laughs> I think like <laughs> the next book to pick up is The Dialogues. Like this this book is for you. And I'm so it's, it's a beautiful book. It's from MIT Press. So that's that's one book that comes to mind. On on the black feminist side, there's there are so many different books, but I think the other one that really comes to mind right now is one that I actually didn't read until I was basically wrapping up the book, which is Catherine McKittrick's new book, Dear Science and Other Stories. Mm. And it was very interesting that Catherine and I started to get to know each other last summer as we were both wrapping up these projects. And I'm we've now both interviewed each other for public books so people can find those interviews if they want to get a sense of of what Catherine's all about. Um, She comes at things as a a geographer, a black feminist geographer Mm. and a black feminist scholar. And it was so interesting realizing that we had both written books that were in conversation with each other at the same time. And so I would love for people to read Dear Science and Other Stories in conversation with the disordered cosmos and to read that and the dialogues at the same time. And I think they're a a, a beautiful black trifecta. I love that. Okay, here's my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive read The Disordered Cosmos, who would you want it to be? Yeah, I have to say, I really wish that my grandmother, Elsa Prescott, had been around to see this. Mm, yeah. She she passed away in in 2011. So I wasn't even talking about writing a book at that point. 
Um, so this is just like a piece that she missed out on. There's some hard stuff in the book. Um, I have a lot of regrets about not spending as much time talking to her while I was in graduate school as I probably should have. And part of it is that I had a lot of shame about what I was going through. Mm. Um, but I would hope that, you know, this book would, would make her proud. So I think that's my one person dead or alive that I wish could read the book. I love that answer. All right, everyone, you can get your copy of The Disordered Cosmos now wherever you get your books. Everything we talked about today, I will link to in the show notes. Chanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Chanda for being my guest. Our May book club pick is Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, which we will discuss on May 26th with author Jenny Lee. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.